Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, tells a story about uh, a group of believers in the old Soviet Union back when uh, the Iron Curtain was still up and uh, believers there had to hide out for their faith. One Sunday, a group of believers had gathered. They'd come in small groups, you know, here and there as they had secretly gathered for worship that morning. They didn't want to arouse the suspicions of the KGB. They began to sing a hymn quietly in the home, and suddenly in walked two soldiers with uh, loaded weapons. One shouted, If you wish to renounce your commitment to Jesus Christ, leave now. Two or three quickly left, then another few seconds elapsed and a couple of more slipped out into the, the night. And after a few more seconds, this is your last chance. Either turn against your faith in Christ now and leave, or stay and suffer the consequences, the soldiers said. Again, two more people slipped out into the night. But no one else moved in that room. Parents with children by their sides looked at each other for reassurance, fully expecting to be either hauled off to prison or perhaps shot. The soldier, one of the soldiers, closed the door, looked back at those who stood against the wall at this point, and said, Keep your hands up, but this time in praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. We too are Christians. We were sent to another church several weeks ago to arrest a group of believers, but instead we were converted. We have learned by experience, however, that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be fully trusted. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 this morning. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now we take great comfort in a verse like that. The fact that we can trust Jesus Christ to be consistent, to be faithful, to be the same in character and love yesterday, today, and forever, no matter what we are facing, is a great encouragement. But this verse is packaged right in the middle, sandwiched right in the middle of a whole series of exhortations to the Christians in the Hebrew church. Because with trust comes responsibility. If Jesus is the same eternally, then we must follow him consistently. With faith comes faithfulness. Because he is faithful, he calls us to be faithful, to be trustworthy. The Christian life is a call to faithfulness, to consistency. 
We're not called to make a great splash in life, in the world. We're not called to be stars in the church. We are called to be faithful. Now, he puts this verse right in here because the following four principles from this passage are really an outgrowth of the principle. If Jesus is the same eternally, then we have to follow him consistently. How do we do that? How do we live faithfully? How do we demonstrate that consistency? How do we prove our consistency to Christ? First of all, principle number, number one, we prove our consistency because we follow those who have gone before. We follow those who have gone before. We back up one verse to verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you see. Follow those who have gone before. We're to think back to those who led us in the past, those who taught us the word of God. We are to remember these leaders. And as we recall them, we are to consider the result of their conduct. The Greek word that is translated result literally means outcome or end point. It was often used of the end point of life. In other words, death. The end point of life. And it certainly could refer to those who have died, who have passed away. And we are to think back to their example, and that is certainly an aspect of this. But the word conduct also means lifestyle, and lifestyle or way of life. So as we consider the outcome of the lifestyles of those we have seen who have gone ahead of us in following Jesus Christ... That should make us imitate their faith. The word for faith can also mean faithfulness. And I really think that's the sense here. We are to consider the outcome of the lifestyles of those we have watched who have gone on ahead of us. Maybe they've passed into glory. Maybe they are with the Lord now, or maybe they are still here, but we can see the outcome of their lifestyles, and we are to imitate their faithfulness to the Lord. The generation that fought World War II has often been called the greatest generation, and we remember their faithful sacrifices for our country. In the same way, We are to remember those who have led us in the cause of Christ, in the kingdom of Christ, in the church. And we are to follow their example of faithfulness in life as we see the outcome of their lifestyles for the Lord. Now, here is a very, very important concept to get a hold of. It is one of the important reasons why we should be committed to the local church over the long term, over the long haul. There is great value in having children grow up 
in a church where they can see the faithfulness of, of the godly lifestyles of those who have walked ahead of them. You know, if families are bouncing around from church to church, they never see this lived out consistently, and they have no examples to follow. I think back to my teen years growing up in the church, and I think of men that I consider heroes of the faith. These are not stars of this world. Few people know them outside of the church where we went. And my dad pastored. I think of Steve Strout. And I think of Gerald Woodsome. Long since gone to their reward with the Lord now. But I can look back now and see the, the outcome of their lifestyles. And that's powerful because we have an example then to follow. And I'm glad that my children were able to grow up here in Galilee Baptist Church because there are people that have walked with Christ here in this fellowship. And my children can see the outcome of their lifestyles and that godliness and that faithfulness is a powerful example because we learn much more by what we see than what somebody tells us. And I pity those who, because they never commit on the long, over the long haul, don't have that wonderful chance to consider the outcomes of men and women of God and to learn to mimic their faithfulness. In August of 2006, Newsweek magazine interviewed Billy Graham. Of course, Billy Graham has had a long history of serving the Lord. One of Dr. Graham's daughters, Anne Graham Lotz, recounted a conversation in that interview with her father. And the conversation was on the subject of aging. That's a great subject, isn't it? (laughs) One I'm thinking much more of lately. (laughs) She said, all my life, or, or he said, Billy Graham said to her, his daughter, all my life I've been taught how to die. Billy Graham said, but no one ever taught me how to grow old. And his daughter replied, well, daddy, you are now teaching all of us how to grow old. See the example? So I want to encourage you older folks in our fellowship. You have tremendous value. We live in a culture where we tend to value youth too much. Youth may have energy, but age shows consistency. And you are an example to all of us who are coming along behind you and watching the outcome of your lives. And we have some wonderful examples in this fellowship right here to mimic their faithfulness. So young people watch, observe, see how they walk, see the outcome of their lives, 
and follow that example. It's a valuable ministry, the ministry of example. We need examples to imitate. We we have heroes of the faith right here in this fellowship. And that's a powerful influence. I like what Andrew Murray wrote many years ago. God has no more precious gift to a church or an age than a man, or you could say woman, who lives as an embodiment of his will and inspires those around him with the faith of what grace can do. That is so true. Look, there are lots of bad examples out there, aren't there? We need good examples. Live for the Lord all the way to the end. God will use you in ways you may not know to teach others the ministry of faithfulness and consistency. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Go and do thou likewise. Be consistent for the Lord. You are God's gift to the church. Second principle. Don't be misled by legalism. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so don't be misled by every new whim and creative teaching that comes around. Do not get carried away by crafty and foreign teachings that are not from the Lord or are not consistent with His Word. So many are so easily carried away in the Christian church by some exciting new teacher advocating some exciting new concepts. Don't go there. Jesus Christ has not changed. Just because something is the newest and the greatest doesn't mean it's the truth. We are far too quickly caught up in the latest fad or the newest teaching. Be faithful, be consistent. Jesus is consistent. He is the same forever and so we should exhibit that same consistency. So examine all of the doctrines, all of the teachings, even that you hear here, even that you hear me speak about. Examine those and make sure they are consistent to the Jesus we follow and consistent to the word that he left us. Word of God speak, right? Why? Because he says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The local church must value grace because grace strengthens the heart in ways that nothing else can. We are products of God's grace. And we've sung about that this morning. The word for strengthen means to confirm or secure the heart. You will find no security in rules and regulations. You will find no real lasting eternal security in performance-oriented legalism. Why? Because sooner or later you're going to fall. Sooner or later you're going to mess up. And there goes the security. Nobody can do it. 
works-oriented legalism produces insecurity. It does not strengthen the heart, the soul. The verse goes on to say that no one was ever strengthened by foods. Really, he's talking about rules about foods. What to eat, what not to eat, when to eat it, how to eat it. The regulations about food never helped anyone in their walk with the Lord. Such things, he says, do not benefit the soul. Now, of course, he is clearly referring to the Jewish dietary regulations. This is the letter to the Hebrews, right? And they're all dealing with the question of falling back into Judaism and all of the rules and regulations. So he's saying, look... You can look at all of that, and you can look at all of those people, and all of those dietary regulations. Did they ever benefit anyone's soul? No. They never helped anyone inside, in their souls. They never saved anyone. Now, Jesus said much the same thing when dealing with the Pharisees who are all concerned about these regulations about about life as if their traditions could benefit the soul. Remember, he had this ongoing debate with the Pharisees. He said, it's not what's outside and all of your regulations about what to do, and they had a host of those traditions, and religion does, in general, do that. It's not what's outside, it's what's inside that is important. And those things don't benefit your souls. You can look at it in Mark chapter 7. But Paul also wrote in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. See, these were all the Jewish regulations. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, the problem with legalism is that it sounds so holy, it sounds so right, but never really strengthens the heart at all. It just makes us look good on the outside, and that's the problem with religion. Religion is all about making us look good on the outside, so that people look at us at church or wherever we are, and we look good. It doesn't do a thing for the soul. And it is inside holiness that really matters for eternity. And that only comes by grace. Law cleans up the outside but kills the inside. Grace strengthens the heart. So we ought to be all about grace in our ministries, in our churches. And that's how we carry out the same consistency that Jesus Christ lived. Third principle, identify with the cross of Christ. Identify with the cross of Christ. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 13, as he continues, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. 
For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We have an altar from which they have no right to eat, he says. (laughs) Now, this is a rather awkward section of scripture because what is the altar that he's referring to and who are the we and who are the they? We have an altar. We have an altar that they have no right to eat. Now, many Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox writers over the years have argued that the altar is the Eucharist or what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. That it is the altar of Eucharist. And the we are Christians and the they are Jews. And they have no right to eat from the Eucharistic table. Well, there's nothing about the Eucharist or communion in this whole section at all. And so, there's no reason to read into the text, I think, a Eucharistic meaning. Others argue that the we here are we Hebrews, and the they are the priests. And the altar is a sacrifice performed on the Day of Atonement. Now you know that some sacrifice the priests ate from, and others they did not. The Day of Atonement sacrifice they never ate from, because that was the scapegoat, and that scapegoat was sent off bearing the sins of the people outside the camp. Now it is very likely that he is thinking about the scapegoat here in the Day of Atonement. But I don't think he's thinking about the we being we Hebrews and they being the priests. That doesn't seem to fit the argument of Hebrews very, very well. The best understanding, I think, is to see the altar as the cross, the sacrifice of Christ on that cross. And this sacrifice was done, he said, outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem doesn't add that, but outside of the gates. Why? Because it was dishonorable. It was a horrible thing. And just as in the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, so Jesus Christ had to go outside of the gates of Jerusalem, the Jewish holy city, to suffer and to die. So we... Christians have an altar. That altar is the cross of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross. And they, Jewish people or any non-believer, have no right to eat from that sacrifice. You have to come to God through Christ. It is the only way. The main point of the whole section is this issue of disgrace that Christ experienced. We too must be willing to suffer disgrace for Christ because he suffered disgrace for us. We know that the honor of this world is not our motive. We are looking, he says, for a heavenly city, not an earthly one. So the way of the cross is the way of Christ. 
The way of the cross is the way of the Christian. The way of the cross is the way of suffering and humiliation and dishonor outside of the camp. Now remember, he is, of course, writing to people, Jews, Hebrews, who have professed faith in Christ, but now are turning back from following Christ to go back to their old ways in Judaism. He says, look, there's, yeah, you don't get to eat of the altar if you do that. Don't go there. Don't go there. We are called to take up the cross of Christ and follow him. And that may mean insult and disgrace and humiliation and even persecution. The way of the cross is following Christ outside of the gates of the city. We don't usually have to face a whole lot of persecution in our culture here in America. Oh, maybe maybe we might face a little ridicule at school or college or neighborhood or work. You know, you're goody two-shoes or you're holier than thou and this kind of thing. We might face a little ridicule, but we don't face much real persecution. But Christians around the globe do. Many do. And certainly in the first century that he was writing to, they were facing intense persecution. Just this week I received an email from a friend who works with Christian churches in the country of India. The email, and I printed it out, has 19 pages of major incidents of persecution against Christians in India that have occurred just from January to August of this year. There are over a hundred major incidents. And back in 2008, by the way, in India, over a hundred Christians were killed for their faith. It was in one province of India alone And thousands were driven from their homes in that province in India. But this was all current. This was all from January to August of this year. And there are over a hundred major incidents that he, he detailed for me in that report. For example, just a few of them. On January 25th, extremists poured gallons of gasoline on Jesus Loves Holy Temple Church and set the church on fire, burning it to the ground after threatening the church members to stop worshiping Jesus. May 24, extremists attacked Pastor T. Paul as he was returning from church. They, they pulled him out of his car, they beat him up and left him on the side of the road for dead. On March 25, men attacked Pastor Gladwin Massey and one church member as they were coming back from a worship service at church. They beat them up with cricket stumps and hockey sticks. On February 28th, men led by a municipal councillor seized two men, two Christians, Lambani and Satish. They beat them up until they fell unconscious and then left them by the side of the road because of their faith in Christ. Churches are being burned to the ground. Christians are being beat up. There are reports of rape and other atrocities to Christians because they dare to name the name Jesus Christ. The choice, the choice to follow the way of the cross is a serious choice when you live in those contexts, isn't it? What about us? 
Are we willing to suffer a little disgrace? Are we willing to go to Christ outside of the camp and live where he lives because we identify ourselves with the way of the cross? Ask yourself that question because it's a pretty serious one. Will I follow Christ that way? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Great, wonderful, makes me feel good. But how do I live then? See, that's the question. Fourth principle, we offer sacrifices of praise. Verse 15. Through him then, let us continually... See, again, this consistency continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, in the early church, we know from some of the writings of people like Irenaeus, one of the church fathers and other writings, we know that accusations were made against Christians Christians were accused of having no true religion because they had no altar and they had no sacrifices. And religion has to have altar and sacrifices to be a religion. Right? Well, he's saying we have an altar. It's the cross of Christ. And we have sacrifices. They are the sacrifices of our praise and worship to Christ. Notice the opening of the word the opening words in verse 15. They are emphatic in the Greek. Through him, that's Jesus Christ, we offer sacrifices of praise to God. And there are two kinds of sacrifices we offer to God. First, we offer sacrifices with our words, and second with our works. And God is delighted God is well pleased when we offer these sacrifices through him, through Christ. That's the only way you can come to God is through Christ. So he is well pleased when we offer them through Christ. So let us continually, without stopping, on an ongoing basis, offer sacrifices of praise to God. Now the first kind of sacrifice is our words. It is the fruit of our lips. It involves confessing his name. See, he says, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The word, the word translated give thanks is the Greek word that means confessing his name. That's how we worship him, by confessing his name before others. Worship is not just what we do in this room. And we call this our worship service, right? And it is our worship service. It is the gathered worship service or the corporate worship service of believers. And of course we express praise to God with our words, with our lips. But worship is very much more than that on an individual basis. Every time we confess the name of Christ wherever we are, before anyone, we are worshiping him with our lips. And this is an interesting quotation from the Old Testament, actually. It comes from Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2. Go back and read that section if you have time. 
sometime. But the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint translates that with we offer him the sacrifice of our lips, you see. The, the expression that is here, the fruit of lips. All right? But in the Hebrew, in Hosea 14, it is literally the bull calves of lips. Do you get the metaphor? You people are offering your bull calves as your sacrifice of praise. We offer the calves of our lips as the sacrifice of praise. That's our worship. That's our sacrifice. You slaughter a bull on the altar. Our bull calves are on our lips as we confess his name. These are our sacrifices of praise to him. Do you confess his name? You're worshiping when you do. A pastor's daughter was asked to give the closing prayer at her high school graduation a few years ago. A Jewish student was also uh, asked to give the opening prayer. She was giving the closing prayer. The Jewish student was giving the opening prayer. So the principal asked the pastor's daughter if she would refrain from using the name of Christ in her prayer, lest someone of other faiths be offended. She replied she would be glad to omit Christ's name from her closing prayer if the Jewish student would mention Christ's name in his opening prayer so that those who honor that name wouldn't be offended. She got to pray as she had planned, naming the name of Jesus Christ. Confessing Christ before others is giving God the fruit, the bull calves of our lips. Whether it's at work, whether it's in a high school graduation, whether it's wherever it is, we're worshiping him. So we offer the sacrifice of our words, but we also offer the sacrifice of our works, he says. It is not enough to confess Christ with our lips. We are to be continually doing good and having fellowship with one another. These are our sacrificial works that we offer to God. Service is worship. Every Christian is to be a serving Christian. Whether it's under the roof of this building or it's out there during the week, every Christian is to be a serving Christian. There's no such thing as a healthy Christian who is not serving his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this service is a lifelong calling for all of us. Let me ask you a question. Do you come to church to serve or be served? If you come to church simply to be served, then you have missed the whole point of worship. That's not worship. Worship is service, whether it's here or outside of these doors. Find ways to serve one another, to do good. Don't neglect doing good for one another. There are more opportunities in our church to serve than we have people who are serving. It's a constant issue, isn't it? We're always looking for people to serve. So talk with Pastor Tom or me or someone else or note the opportunities for service and volunteer and get involved. But it's not just in church that we ought to be serving. It is wherever we serve the Lord 
And there are so many ways to do that. So I encourage you to be a serving Christian, for that is an act of worship to a living God. And fellowship. He says, don't neglect doing good and sharing is the word here. It's our word koinonia or fellowship or partnership. Fellowship is an act of worship too. Partnership with one another in the work of the Lord. We value one another. That's fellowship in the work. And these are acts of worship then. When we devalue one another and we distance ourselves from one another, we are no longer worshiping God in the way that he delights, takes pleasure in. God wants us to come near to him by coming near to one another in partnership. And that is true worship. While Stuart Sachs was serving in Paraguay, a Maka Indian named Raphael came to sit on his porch while he was eating dinner. And he stopped eating and he went out to see what the Maka Indian wanted. The man responded in his native language, I don't want anything, I have just come near. I thought that was rather odd. He asked him again, he said, I don't want anything, I have just come near. Sitting on my porch while I eat, but won't eat with me. Didn't come for anything, just to come near. So, sometime later, he shared that incident with a with another missionary there who had been there many years, and he asked him for the significance of what the man was telling him. And the other missionary explained that it was Raphael's way of honoring Stuart. He really didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit on his porch. He found satisfaction in pleasure just being near him. (laughs) What brings you here, my child, the Lord asks. Oh, nothing, I just want to be near. See, that's worship. I didn't come for anything today, God, I just wanted to be near. And what about partnership and fellowship with others? Oh, I didn't come for anything. I just want to be near. Don't neglect to come near to the Lord by coming near to each other. That's true worship. And God is thrilled when we commit ourselves to worship that way. Are you only satisfied with church when your needs are met and everybody does what you need that's not worship come to church and learn to be near near to each other and near to God it's not about what I need it's not about what I have to have you know we we come to God all the time saying God give me this give me that we come to church expecting people to meet our needs it's about being near God and each other. And that's worship. I like what pastor and author Erwin Lutzer says. If we haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter how well we do anything else.
Have you grasped that concept in life? So often worship is viewed as a way to meet my needs. That's not worship. We even talk about the worship experience, you know. As if when I'm moved and and I'm emotionally caught up in it, well, that's what I come for and I need that. That's not worship either. Worship is saying, Lord, I want to be near you. And I offer my works and I offer my words. It's not what we get out of worship that matters. It's what we give in worship. These are our sacrifices of praise. And if we haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter what else you do. Because that is what de- that God delights in. Our works and our words given to him. In January of 2006, author Randy Alcorn had the opportunity to join with Jim Elliott's family for a dinner that marked the 50th anniversary of the martyrdom of Jim and four other missionaries in Ecuador. That's an old story now for many of us who grew up in the church. Some of you may not even be familiar anymore with Jim Elliott, but there were five missionaries who went down to the Alca Indians in Ecuador, and they died uh, beside the Curacay River there in Ecuador, martyred for their faith. Never got the opportunity. Now, by the way, there is a vibrant Christian church established there among the Alca Indians. But back then, they all died for their faith. And Jim Elliott was well known and his story was all over the Christian world as we talked about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the others. Well, Randy Alcorn went to the 50th anniversary of the martyrdom of Jim and he met Jim's older brother, Bert Elliott, and his wife, Colleen. How many of you ever heard of Bert Elliott? I hadn't. <laughs> Well, Bert and Colleen Elliott had gone to, as missionaries, to Peru in 1949 before Jim Elliott ever went to Ecuador. They had gone. He's the older brother. And when they were discussing his ministry at this gathering, Bert Elliott smiled and said, I can't wait to get back from furlough. He's in, he and his wife are in their 80s. And they're still serving in Peru. And he can't wait to get back to the work. They're in their 60th year as full-time missionaries in Peru. Bert and Colleen may enter eternity, and none of us may have ever heard of them. (laughs) Well, you have now. Bert said something to Randy that day that he said he'll never forget. He said, Jim and I both served Christ. Jim Elliott, his brother. Jim and I both served Christ, but differently. Jim was a great meteor streaking through the sky. And he left it there. And Randy Alcorn goes on to describe Bert. He says, unlike his brother Jim, Bert is a faint star that rises night after night after night, faithfully crossing the same path in the sky to God's glory. I believe Jim Elliott's reward is considerable, but it wouldn't surprise me to discover that Bert and Colleen's will be greater still. See, we don't honor those kinds of faithful 
servants enough. God is more interested that we be steady stars and not shooting stars. You may not have a great light to shine. Maybe your light is just being faithful as an example before your family this week. Maybe your light is rising night after night and going across the same part of the sky to God's glory. Well, I want to tell you that brings God pleasure. That's what he says. God delights in those sacrifices. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we should be too. And that honors him. Father, teach us that in commitment we are consistent for you. We don't have to be the brightest lights in the expanse of your kingdom. We are called to be steady and to serve you with faithfulness, with our words and with our works, to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number